You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf from Iron Source. So welcome back, everyone. I'm Melissa Zalouf, and you're listening to Level Up, the podcast for people who love making, growing, and of course, playing mobile games. Today on the show, I'm here with Lisa Brunette, CEO and owner of Brunette Games. Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. So you've just told me that you're not a podcast noob and you actually run your own podcast, which is on your gardening blog. <laughs> let's, just, let's just take a moment before we dive into your uh, background um, in gaming and journalism and other things to talk about your gardening sidekick, hobby. Where, yeah. So my husband and I have a quarter acre garden uh, just outside the city limits here in our headquarters in St. Louis. And we just found we had a lot to say about it. Yeah. Uh, the essays as podcasts and we are starting to interview people as well. And it's just a lot of fun. We really enjoy it. Gardening is a really wonderful component to a couple of people who work, you know, full time at their computers and work on games uh-huh. and digital and screen based. So it's nice to have that uh, connection to nature and to be outside. And it's just a good antidote to everything else that we do. Yes. I like it. I feel like I need to take up. Do you want to go? What's the name of the blog? Oh, it's uh, it's actually, you know, my, my company, of course, is Brunette Games. And it's really easy to name a company when you can name it after yourself because those names aren't taken. And here in Missouri, you have to have an original business name. So I actually use Brunette for that yeah. as well. And it's its its own company. It's Brunette Gardens. So I'm Brunette yes. Games and Brunette Gardens. It worked in both cases, so why not? Yeah. Very interesting thing. That's great. Thing too, because I come from a long line of brunettes who are small business owners, and there were mm. brunette pairs that my mom grew up uh, being attached to in her family, and we're all uh, from the House of Burnett in Scotland. So uh, there you go. Okay, I like that even more. Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm supposed to go visit. Okay. Yeah, I I would do that. Um, so, guys, if you're interested in gardening as well as games, you know where to go. Um, so, let's talk about you. You're pretty pretty much a, a veteran in the game industry, perhaps also in gardening. Um, but it's not the only thing you've done. Before that, you actually worked in um, journalism, academia, museums, if I'm not mistaken. Um, tell us a little bit about that journey. How did you end up uh, in games? Sure. Uh, so I've, I've, yes, I've been in the gaming industry for 15 years and I was a journalist for 15 years before that. And when I say journalist, it was a lot of different kinds of writing that uh, most often was feature writing as a journalist and worked for some newspapers, including Seattle Post Intelligencer and some other publications. Uh, what's interesting, I think, is the trajectory or the through line, the plot line, if you will, it's interactive storytelling. So when I worked at the museum, for example, I was writing and researching the text that would appear on the wall accompanying a a gallery, an exhibit gallery that would visit in interactive science education. So it was the history of information technology. And I, I 
writing about video games and through that. Uh, and then as a journalist, it was all online, of course, by the time I was writing. And so we were always uh, editing things with interactive components, whether those were charts or graphs or whatever, or leaks, hyperlinks. So telling storytelling in these kind of interactive spaces, and it's just always been kind of a nerdy interest of mine. So when I had an opportunity to join the gaming industry uh, at Nintendo, that's what I did. And it was really exciting to just be able to translate all of that right into game writing. Mm -hmm. It's funny. Um, I too have a slightly odd or somewhat similar journey. I used to work in publishing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> really um, not. Uh, there, was, there was a short period of time where I actually read erotica for a living. Um, <laughs> and yes, That's um, more on that. More on that <laughs> another time. Um, yes. <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, but I, I, I often think that I think that storytelling is kind of the, um, the mechanics of storytelling, understanding what makes a good story, um, is kind of at the basis of almost anything, um, you want to do successfully in life, I think, um, because in the end it's, it's the practice of kind of, I think, capturing people's attention and then I don't know if you want to say getting them to do something right. But, um great stories or stories are how we understand ourselves and how you sort of, I think it's part of how we function in the world. So actually I, I sort of feel like you could run a plot through line um, from any sort of like writing or storytelling background into almost any other um, industry. It certainly, it's worked that way for me in marketing. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. That's actually one of the arguments that we make with our clients is that, uh, well, in the beginning, we don't even have to make that argument because everyone is it's keen to it but yeah those stories are what bring players back especially for some of our really long-running games uh like for example sweet escapes we know that the story on that game is bringing players back and that there is a cemented loyalty to the and character occurs over years when you're playing a puzzle game uh it's it's really fascinating and and compelling and interesting for us as people who love story <laughs> so what is break this down for me what is writing for game like what's involved where where are you is it like here i'm going to write a story arc that then informs kind of like the the character behavior or here i'm going to write what this character says or maybe it's all of it yeah it's all of it so we actually have uh distinct milestones that we follow on all of our projects with clients we start with them at the concept stage and we pitch three high level story ideas. This is after a conversation with the client in which we understand what is the main gameplay, whether that's jigsaw puzzle or merge gameplay or match three. Uh, and is there a meta element? So in our games, often that meta element is decorating or perhaps makeover or sometimes both. And then we create a story that that really attempts to bridge and merge those. And, and that's the difference between the writing I did as journalist or, uh, you know, I also have a, a novel series in print. That writing is very different than games because the number one reason the player is there is to have fun and to play the game and to interact. They're not passive. So we're really working on what is that story that is going to merge all those three things together in this beautiful way. And we carry that through that process with every milestone. 
it's the characters that have to make sense for the gameplay. And then when we get to the script writing, you know, we're not obviously putting a lot of text on screen. We want things to be very short and very punchy. And uh, in most cases, while there's drama and and uh, interesting conflict that has to occur, uh, otherwise it's not interesting. And most of all, writing is jokes and and we're really pushing the humor and being kind of meta and fun and uh just giving players that opportunity to enjoy a story and characters along with this nice diversion that is the puzzle game so does that mean that um how does sort of like game does okay um what you've kind of talked about now is is sounds a lot like sort of setup to what degree does game writing and and i actually don't know this right how many game companies have writing teams um on staff in-house how much is it a sort of like focus of the ongoing management and operations of the game or is it something that's done at the beginning like here's build the world build these characters and what motivates them and and what drives them um build all the existing content that we need right now and then you know we're off to the races and thank you goodbye yeah, that's a good question. You know, from my perspective as someone who runs a service provider team, you know, we're five people dedicated to the writing. Uh, we like, of course, clients who don't already have writers because then they Different. need us. Uh, yes. and, and, you know, that's that's a good value proposition because most studios, A, can't afford a full-time narrative designer or script writer. And sometimes that's two different jobs. Uh, they don't they don't need one so most of our clients actually uh draw on our studio time at a rate of about 10 hours so you know eight 40 hours they just need someone we write a chapter it takes maybe uh you know 10 to 12 hours and then we turn it over to them they take a week to look at it and then back to us and so it works really well that way so that's kind of the, the logistics of it uh, but yeah, every step of the way, we're working with the client and we give them feedback on the characters. Uh, we're sort of the storytelling expert working alongside programmers and artists and usually like a creative director or a creative designer who's involved there. And so we're, we're very much a part of the conversation and providing those dialogue scripts. We work in spreadsheets. Uh, I know a lot of writers don't do that you know they're not technical but we are we uh handle a little bit of code whether that's you know turning something into italics or uh programs a character to do a certain interaction or animation uh it's it's uh very different than the other kinds of writing in that way and also we're writing tutorial messages too and trying to you know it's nice if it's in the character voice instead of like some you know thir- uh, third corporate speak yeah and yeah, saying hey here's a power up you know want it to be in the character voice and have a, a seamless experience all the way through and um how would you say that kind of that investment in narrative and storytelling is present in um almost the majority of game companies today or is it actually something that's unique um savvy game companies let's say will say okay i know i need to invest in narrative and storytelling or is it i imagine also hugely impacted by genre 
Yeah, you know, I'm honestly not sure I can answer that question for the whole industry. I know that there are whole uh, narrative design and script writing teams that's Legal A Studios, as I've had colleagues who have either led those teams or been involved in them. Uh, typically, the clients we work with do not have that at all, uh, unless they're a large client, like we've worked with Jam City for a number of years. And they have their own in-house narrative design. I mean, I actually worked very closely with their vice president of narrative, uh, who's now with another company. But <laughs> yeah, so they've had narrative VPs, narrative directors, and, and then we, uh, with their narrative teams. And we, we typically work just in collaboration with them. So there's another reason they bring us on. It's because of our house expertise or uh, they want to give their team a break from a long running title and so we'll take okay. it on and we actually have you know five people so we can rotate like we worked on their title family guy the quest for stuff for a really long time and we just rotated it amongst our team so that no one ever got burnt out Bento. yes <laughs> and yeah uh, person i think on their team who had worked on it had had written it for six years so he was definitely uh, a break done with it <laughs> <laughs> um so let's talk about um different mediums maybe because you you've been involved in creating narratives for pc for console for mobile um games are the same i imagine the same skills are transferable right because good stories are good stories but how does the writing or the process differ yeah that's you know no one's ever asked me that question so good on you for looking through that background i was just actually talking about this someone last night uh so when i started at nintendo we were actually paired with localization translators so they were uh translating the rough the japanese into rough english and then we were polishing and adding characterization and actually even the whole story because it was a completely different story for the north american version of the game we were working on uh, so that was that was pretty interesting and different to work with translators, but that's kind of the only time I've done it that way, and that was to Nintendo of America being a Japanese co uh, company and then porting those games over to the U.S. market. So it was a little bit different than usually. Since then, I've always worked English first, uh -huh. and I have something to do with the localization after that, but usually not. Uh -huh. uh, so those games, that, that first game I worked on was for the DS and I worked on some other platform games. Those were for families and uh, younger players. So in the case of that first game for the DS, it was uh, teen girls. <laughs> so that's a different audience than when I migrated over to uh, Binfish games. That became a new focus for me, which was women over 35. Mm -hmm. and as the player audience myself, it was a lot easier for me because it's, you know, my personal taste as well. Now, mm -hmm. that said, I'm not the typical player because I work on games. So I always had to make that distinction. And I tell my team now to make that distinction. Like, even though you're a game player, you work on games. So your audience is not you. you they're a little bit different. Uh, so, yeah, it's just... In that case, it was working with teams of developers all over the world, uh, many of them, and Ukraine, uh, Russia, other places like that. So 
these were third-party developers that I was working with and acting as kind of their narrative coach, so to speak, and gatekeeper. So it's kind of like the role just changed. And then when I launched my own company, by that point, the focus was mobile. And so uh, if if I had to say what the difference between all three, like the in the DS, you have a, a really captured audience or the Wii, you have a captured audience because it's in their home. They're playing either with their friends or with their family usually. Uh, when it was women over 35 playing on PC, that was very much solitary. They might have had some interaction with other players online, but it was really their me time. And then when you get to mobile, it's a again, a, a bit of a different player in that when we're on our mobile devices, we have tons of distractions. So that's way different than you're in your living room with your weed. <laughs> so just taking that, that context into consideration every step of the way, you know, if you're dedicated to your PC and this is your me time, that's a different play than I'm on the bus and I might get called for my stop or I got right. my Facebook notifications coming in. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's has changed through each of those different types of platforms that I've worked on. How much um, does data play a role in how you guys work? Meaning, do you sort of, are you looking at stats of, of sort of like user engagement and say, okay, this story is working really well, or, oh no, this character isn't resonating. We need to shift, shift their story arc or kill them off or whatever it might be. Yeah, that that's absolutely the way it works. So it depends on the client and what data resources uh, okay. Everything. When we work with Jam City, they have pretty robust psychosocial data uh, studies that they do on their player audience, and we'll even have buckets and categories of of types of players that we understand gravitate toward different genres, and so we're absolutely designing with them in mind, uh, trying to appeal to maybe like a hybrid and different players, for example. There is a certain type of player who really enjoys remaking the world uh, in their own image, so to speak. So those those de- players who like to be God, yeah, they like to play God. Those decorating games are very <laughs> for that reason. So you know, and also it's it's not just the playing God; it's also fixing something. So really? this idea. That's why they're always in a destroyed state when you get there, like something terrible has happened because we like to be the one to come and, and re, you know, remodel it to, to make mm-hmm. it be what it be. Which, you know, we started talking about my gardening in the beginning. I I took over a quarter acre of grass and weeds and invasive plants. And over the course of uh, five years, I completely transformed it. <laughs> and, and you even- like it. Yeah, I even won a, I won a platinum award. So I, I gamified my own experience in real life. <laughs> like our players gamified, you know, we often have gardens in our games and they love to rehabilitate the garden. <laughs> it's the same. <laughs> it's all about stories and gardens. Um, so, so um, I, I think when people think about narrative in games, I think it's probably intuitively understood in terms of like 
a game that's immersive, that has a very distinct world and characters, right, with with uh, individual traits and story arcs. How does narrative apply in uh, mobile game genres like hypercasual? Does it at all, right? Um, or or even casual games. I mean, obviously, there's a, there's a big difference between just those two. Um, but is narrative something which has to be considered in every kind of game and every kind of genre, or are there places that it just doesn't fit? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there is the player, and I actually have one as an employee when I was a fish, um, Margie the Saint. She ran our uh, player guide. So there was like a, a walkthrough or a player guide that was included in every collector's edition version of the games that we worked on at Big Fish. And uh, because she wrote those guides and her team uh, created those walkthroughs, they reported to me as the manager of narrative design. But Mercy herself was not into the story in any of the game. She just wanted to play the puzzle. Like she was just there for the puzzles and did not really mm-hmm. the story. So there, that player absolutely exists and they'll play a story driven game like the ones of big fish even if it has the story uh but i think if those puzzles are available without the story and there's certainly other types of genres where you know male players female players whatever uh want to play a game that doesn't have the story i think that's fine it's not true that every game should have a story Uh, What is true is that story can be the thing that really cements people to it. You know, there's this, uh, Jonathan Gottschall uh, wrote The Storytelling Animal, and he says there's a section of the story that, and you and I were talking about it at the beginning, that just, this is how we understand and make sense of our world is to tell stories about it. And so we just yield to that power uh, psychologically and emotionally and so if you if you have space for that in your game and you're not providing it then you're possibly missing out on something that can help the success of your game I know okay. from my big fish that it absolutely does so we were able to do a study that compared uh, a storytelling expert so someone from my team a nerdic designer working on a game versus a game that was very much the same, except it didn't have that storytelling person work on it. And the game that had us touch it performed better. So it was made that. Yeah. That was the basis by which I was able to build a team at Big Edge. So that story does, you know, help games sell. So Mm -hmm. So how do you create, how do you create a good one? What are the sort of like um, narrative hooks? that keep audiences engaged, um, coming back. What, how could you do this if you were just like an indie developer and you don't have uh, the resources to build a team or, or use you guys? Well, I think indie developers should, should reach out to us anyway, because, you know, we have particular discounts for really small studios and we can work with them usually. Uh, but to answer your question, it's to not have the story get in the way uh, I think especially those indies uh, sometimes come to games with a novel and a drawer that they want to turn into a game. And that's usually a bad way to start. Uh, we instead 
start with the game and then craft a story that's integrated with it. So we don't want to turn anyone's novel into a game. Uh, mm -hmm. That means that the story was written for passive entertainment, not for the interaction of games. So right off the bat, the first thing you want to do is make sure that you're creating, you know, story in service to game is how we work. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and just to give an example of that, and it can be, you know, really challenging. So I'm working right now on something that uh, we're getting to the climax of the story and it's a decorating game. So I need to cue the decorating. And how do I do that when the king has been poisoned or we're supposed to be helping the king, right? Because he just fell down and he's possibly poisoned. And so there may be a culprit and all these things are happening that are very dramatic, but we still have decorating. That's why the player is there. So, well, what we're going to do is get some beautiful pillows, prop up the king, and we're going to uh, get a huge fan, you know, one of those like servant things. Mm -hmm. Yes. Be yeah. So everything is an excuse for decorating, even when it's high drama and climate. And that's the mm -hmm. difference really have to think about those two things coming together there's actually it's making me think there's, there's a lot more um crossover now what's it called Mul not mixed media i don't remember now multimedia cross media cross media like there's a lot of games becoming tv shows or movies and sort of like vice versa um is that something which you think um like, it, I don't even know what my question is. It's, I think it's, first of all, have you worked on any of those kinds of projects when you say, you know, a lot of developers have a novel in the draw they want to turn into, into a game? Um, is it harder actually to work with an existing kind of property versus building a story from scratch? Yeah, actually, uh, I know you're, you're struggling to come up with the question, but I think it's a great topic uh, and I can approach it from a number of directions here. Uh, first, we, of course, worked on, on the Family Guy project, and yeah. uh, we met uh, every other week or so with the show writers for the Fox TV show. So yes. that's a collaboration. And what's interesting about that process is that the game is a different monkey than the TV show. So we had a lot of conversations around, okay, what jokes don't work in the game? Because yeah. it's a different medium. Uh, we have the app store regulations, so there is a little bit of a propriety, but it's family guys, so we know it's going to be, you know, what it is. <laughs> so there's a difference. There's like just certain jokes that don't play well on a game because they're short bits <laughs> and heating up gameplay, whereas in a TV show, you're not doing that. Uh, the other thing I can say is that we, of course, worked on a couple of projects that have given rise to viral ads. And they have a story arc of their own. Uh, in the case of Lily's Garden, there's those ads. And we actually did not work on the ads ourselves. In fact, uh, but they're outside the game, right? So they didn't, when I worked on the story for the game, I didn't come up with ad stories. That's outside. Uh, in the case of Merge Mansion, we actually worked very closely with the marketing team to create two different arcs that played with each other but were distinct. 
Uh, one is, you know, you've seen the ads with Kathy Bates, the American actress. Yeah. She's really famous and she does such a fantastic job with horror. Um, and then the the story in the game itself, though, is is different and there is an interplay. Uh, it's kind of this cross-platform thing that is happening now more that we are working with marketing teams and talking okay. with them early on in the project about what could give rise, right, to marketing type stories that could possibly go viral. So other than that, uh, we, we haven't found any TV shows yet, but we certainly love <laughs> Well, guy, you had it here. Um, so give me more examples of, of kind of how, the, how this works or what it looks like. So how does um, level design, right, play into um, game narrative? Like how, how do those two or two, I don't know. Yeah, let's, let's stick with level design. Yeah, so in, in many of our games, the genre that we work in are task driven. So we often actually come up with tasks ourselves. Some of them are story tasks, like uh, in my example, I was using with the king. It's uh, examine the glass that he had just had a drink from to see if there's poison in it. So that could be a task, and that's a story task. Yeah. It's not necessarily a decorating, like place this thing here. It's examine the glass. So uh, we design those, and then we work with the teams usually on the straight decorating task because all of that has to come in alignment with what our assets they won't have planned. So it's a real back and forth because uh, in, in the best games, I would say, because we create these spaces that have both story and decorating, and the decorating can help tell the story. project that we worked on with a company, Zenad, uh, it's called Jigsaw Puzzle, and it's one yeah. of my because they were so fun to work with in terms of that uh, telling the story through the environment, and and they thought of all these great details. So it's Jigsaw Puzzle, and we decided to make the story very Jigsaw Puzzle themed. So the character goes to Spain for a big Jigsaw Puzzle competition, and she's even wearing like a little Jigsaw Puzzle pin. And it's just, there's details like that everywhere. And it was just so much fun to kind of work with them and build the spaces that, you know, fit the characters and tell the characters' backstories. And, you know, all of the decorating really matters in that game and is part of, like, creating this both character story arcs and the overall arc, too, for the player character. Do you ever find yourself... Um coming into conflict like that just wouldn't happen like that we need that or we need a decorating task you know like this doesn't fit with a narrative for example or you vice know, versa yeah surprisingly not not very often uh if we've had any conflicts it's more with the design of a character uh and usually in the very beginning and usually with a client that is pretty far removed from, say, North American culture or Western civilization. Uh, it's Western culture because their idea of women is maybe uh, not so politically what <laughs> many players today yep. modern space would want. So mm -hmm. those are the, really the only conflicts we've had is uh, if someone comes to us with like over-sexualized female character and this is for women over 35 and we're like well that's not their fantasy you know okay. be for young male audience but if you really want to appeal to them that's 
that's not going to work. We need someone who's more relatable and less sexualized. So as a interesting. That's really other than, uh, yeah, I can't think of anything. Usually it's just an argument about, uh, well, sometimes with the, the TUI, the first time user experience, we, we know on working on so many games, we've, we've worked on 36 released client games in seven years. So we just know what works and what doesn't. And so sometimes a young studio or yeah, a fairly young studio will come to us and they're doing something that we know has not worked. We'll say, Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, that's, yeah, let's not do that. Cause we, we've seen this actually tested and AD testing and fail. So let's stay away from that. And they usually listen. (laughs) Interesting. Well, that's good. Um, what are sort of some of your tried and true storytelling techniques that you find yourself using time and again? The uh, cliffhanger. That's something that I think TV has really capitalized on, especially with streaming, that uh, drive to get the viewing audience to the next episode is really really powerful so we've made use of that and it's something that i've personally done in my career going all the way back to those games at at big fish because we had in that case a 30 minute free version before you buy the full game and so we always built a cliffhanger in to the end of that that free episode at the beginning so in the mobile games that are free to play we definitely work on what is going to keep retention in that game so yeah we cliffhanger chapters we cliffhanger scenes and i mean not just in an arbitrary way but really something dramatic up and trying to make use of that dramatic intention and interest that players have and we build mystery and mystery can be the source of a great uh set of cliffhangers whether it's a detective story or just a mystery theme within some other genre. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier this, the fact that kind of, um, well, it, it was kind of a uh, Western, non-Western thing, but I think it's also maybe a, a function of time, um, how women are portrayed or sort of like what, you know, how, how do people, and this is just one example, right, uh, women, but how else? Have you seen or how have um, the way in which stories are told and which stories get told changed over the 15 years you've worked in the industry? Yeah, <laughs> it's been pretty dramatic. So when I started in the industry, I think it was like 10% female. Uh, however, I worked in the Nintendo Treehouse, which was run by Leslie Swan, who is this pioneering woman at Nintendo. And the person who headed my team was a, a gay gamer. So hey. uh, we've always been there. <laughs> and I, I spent five years at Big Fish making games primarily for that older female audience. So I don't know that it's changed that much. Uh, the work has changed in that I don't have to argue as much about it need to have uh you know diverse cast that that argument doesn't need to be made anymore uh and hey we don't have to worry about those over sexualized depictions as much so any any time of working with 
any developer who's not from, um, let's say, Asia or Middle East, those conversations don't really need, those arguments don't need to be made. They only Red do it rare instances where it's just a culture that is has not been part of those immense changes as much. Redhead. Uh, pretty amenable too. <laughs> like once you put it out, they get it. Like they understand they're exposed to so much of our culture. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, we understand that. Mm -hmm. uh, oh. So yeah, go ahead. What no, I just um how what's your sort of prediction but what comes next? What's the future of storytelling in games? Yeah, that's a fucking question. I don't, I don't it's have a big, a... It's a big one to end on. <laughs> I don't necessarily have a crystal ball. I, I don't think story will ever go away. Uh, people are more and more interested in it all the time. It's it? interesting to think about that question you asked about the cross-platform. Uh, saw some interactive TV forays made by Netflix with Bandersnatch. Mm -hmm. and I wonder if more of that will come if we start to see more fusing of those kinds of like platform doesn't matter as much anymore. You're getting your story in all these different places and perhaps those passive entertainment uh, offerings become more interactive. I know that you know, games have has surpassed Hollywood in terms of overall earning dollars. That's in years that, now, but that's been true. So maybe the future is just more interactive. And then the other thing that actually kind of concerns those of us who are creatives is what is the role of AI and will it be replaced by AI? Good. I know artists are mostly worried about writers less so because the writing produced by AIs is pretty dreadful. Bad. But who knows what the future, you know, holds in that regard. So, yeah. so we'll have to check back in with you after ChatGPT takes over our lives. Right. Um, <laughs> well, this has been very interesting and educational. Um, gardening, game, stories several wonderful things all wrapped up in one episode so lisa thank you very very much for being on the show and thank you everyone else as always for listening melissa thank you so much and thanks to iron source for being such a great partner with us we've authored our articles for you in the past and yes real honor to be on this podcast as well well we love it we love it T here's to more just until chat gpt takes over <laughs> <laughs>